Welcome to T21 Mom. Hi, friends, and welcome to the T21 Mom podcast. My name is Mary, and this is our 100th episode. I am so proud of achieving this milestone, and I'll have to think of something celebratory to to celebrate it with. But, you know, I'm really excited to be here, still doing this. I love doing it. I hope you're enjoying the show. And, you know, let me know. Let me know what you would like to hear on the show. I I would love to hear some feedback. It's a true labor of love doing this, but I, I really do enjoy doing it. Now, on today's episode, I'm talking to a rockin' dad. His name is Steve Friedman, and he is the author of A New Guide. It's called The Essential Guide for Families with Down Syndrome. And it's an all-encompassing guide to helping our kids to achieve independence through all the stages of their life. You know, it's a little bit of a longer episode, so I don't want to keep you here too long, but it's full of lots of great information and we'll tell you at the end how you can get a copy of this guide. It's fantastic. I think everyone should have a copy because it is, as we talk about, never too late to start. So let's go have a listen. Today on the T21 Mom podcast, I'm talking with rocking dad and author Steve Friedman. Welcome, Steve. Thank you so much. Great to be here, Mary. Awesome. I'm so glad to have you on today. Now, you've written a really wonderful guide called The Essential Guide for Families with Down Syndrome, which is what we're going to be talking about today. But before we get started, can you share a little bit about you and your family? Sure. So my wife and I reside in Austin, Texas. We have three kids. Our oldest child is 28. Her name is Gwendolyn, and she has Down syndrome. And so she has brought us on this fantastic journey, which has also inspired the essential guidebook that we're, we're talking about today. And so it's really been fascinating to kind of see her grow and mature and seek her own independence. If you talk to her, you would find that the word independence comes out of her mouth within the first five minutes, at least. And she's just passionate about it. And I just applaud her. And as many of us can probably attest to, our kids are full of surprises. And really, she's always left us surprised at, mm-hmm. uh, at what she can do, yet yeah. she continues to reach for more. That's wonderful. Now, you mentioned that Gwendolyn, it come the word independence comes out of her mouth, like within a few minutes of talking to her. Is that because you instilled that from an early age or how did that come about? I really don't think so. I mean, you know, we may talk about this later, but I, when I first started thinking about this guide book, we've been on this journey for the last 10 years since Gwen was 18 and she finished high school and, and suddenly we were forced to think about what is life without public school? Mm-hmm. And so we started thinking about that and realized through this process that really it is a lifelong journey. And we probably missed out on some of the opportunities to really instill some of that independence with her from the earliest of ages. But we mm-hmm. rushed to catch up. But I really would have to say that she instigated a lot of this line of discussion. Her sister is a year younger than her, and her brother is about um, seven years younger. And so I think she has role models in the house that Mm -hmm. she saw 
going to school, leaving for college, having relationships, working, and her role models on TV and her friends and other extended family. And I think she she just wondered, you know, why can't I have that? And so one day she came home and said, you know, I, I would really like to be independent. I want to move out. I want to do my own thing. And so we sat down in the kitchen with a big butcher block piece of paper <laughs> and put it over the counter. And we said, okay, tell us more. And even those simple questions, sometimes we miss out on for years and years. I know mm -hmm. we did, but we said, you know, what does independence mean to you? What, what are you interested in? And so she was full of ideas and information. You know, I want to work. I want to have relationships. I want to go to school after high school. I want to do this and that. And so we put it all down there. And then we started to talk about, well, what is, what do you need, think you need to do or be able to do in order to have these things, right? I mean, you can't just move off into uh, your own house. What skills do you need to learn? What do you mm -hmm. need to be able to do to get a job? These sort of things. And so we made what became her independence plan from her own initiative. And that has guided us. I wish we had had it earlier, but it mm -hmm. really guided us to accelerate our her journey. And we just kind of tagged along and helped out. <laughs> That's wonderful. I love that. Now, you talk, obviously, about Gwendolyn a lot throughout the guidebook. And she's 28 now, you said. So how has writing a guidebook for families, like, has it always been on your mind or like you kind of touched a little bit on it or was it, did it kind of start more when Gwendolyn was older, like after she finished school and you pulled out the big butcher piece of paper? <laughs> right. It, it, um, it, it's more recent, I would say. Mm -hmm. So I spent, when I was a kid, I used to write a lot and loved to write, thought I was going to go into journalism. My dad used a more logical, rational approach to convince me I should go into business instead of journalism. <laughs> Might not have been wrong there, but I missed out on, you know, what was my passion at the time. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I spent 30 years in the energy industry in Texas primarily. And when I retired about five years ago, I decided I wanted to dabble in writing and see if I still had an interest in it. And so from there, I started to enjoy it. And I thought about what I wanted to write. And one of the books I really wanted to write at that point, Gwen was already out of high school and mm -hmm. we had already had this sort of conversation about independence. And so one of the books that we thought about writing was about her journey. And so it really started recently. However, I must say, you know, what we thought the book might look like five years ago or so is very different from what it's actually become. Okay. And we've realized that there's so many different paths, right? So having, uh, being a person with Down syndrome or a family with Down syndrome, as I say, uh, mm -hmm. doesn't mean we're all the same by any means or that mm -hmm. we have the same path or dreams or issues. We all have different ones. And so I realized through this writing and through Gwen's own independence that there were different paths. And so we felt like this wasn't going to be a memoir about Gwen and her story, although her story is woven into the pages mm -hmm. of the book, but we really wanted to represent other families and other experiences so that um, ultimately the objective was to help other families to carve out their own independence plan. So we didn't want the book to say, here's what we've done, so you need to do this. Right. But here are a lot of different items you should think about. Here are mm -hmm. some options on each one. And depending on, on your family situation and, and your interests, you may choose something very different. But, but 
we really advocated thinking about that and, and creating an independence plan that's right for you and your family, as opposed to not doing that and maybe uh, missing out on a lot of great experiences and opportunities for the whole family. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, you know, and I will talk more about excuse me, the book, but yeah, I thought it was very thorough and I loved how you gave like different perspectives throughout the book. I thought it was wonderful and can really like it gave me lots of things to think about. I mean, my daughter's only 10, but I realized these things need to start early. Like mm -hmm. you said, you know, you Gwendolyn finished high school and I and I've heard this time and time again where parents, you know, they're kids with Down syndrome, and they finish high school and it's kind of like jumping off a cliff. There isn't really a lot yeah. in place for our kiddos. You know, there's so much less structure and you know, I've always been thinking, well, you can't wait until then to do something. You have to be planning prior to that and get things in place for that, for when they do finish school. Because it's, I think it's in the States, I think you can go up to 22, I think. Is that in correct? Most states, yes, up to 22, right. Okay. And here, I think it's only 19. So yeah, so there's a, there's a good few years there that's different. And, you know, and, and then also those three years could be more like they could be maturing more and stuff. And I kind of wish we had that option where they could stay in school longer and we don't really have that here. So I think it's just so important to have a plan in place for when our kids leave high school. Yeah, that, that was another thing that that uh, changed along our, our path of writing the guide was that I think we expected it was primarily a transition sort of book for people that were finishing high school and were kind of wondering what to do next. But as you've just mentioned, the process really starts many years earlier. It really should start at basically at birth, not yeah. only because there are some financial mm -hmm. benefits that in many U.S. states you need to get in line on because wait lists can be decades. Yes. But also because I think of, it's really critical from a mindset and skill development perspective. I mean, you know, we're all a bit taken aback usually by the fact that our our child is born a little bit different than we might have anticipated. Mm -hmm. And and that's all always a, a traumatic period for, for mm -hmm. everybody. However, I think many parents are surrounded by limitations. Okay, this is not what I expected. They're not going to be able to do this. My mm -hmm. expectation of being able to do that and so forth has now changed dramatically. And there's a mourning period. And that's mm -hmm. all ex expected and normal, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, however, I think especially these days, there are so many opportunities for the individual with Down syndrome and for the family. I mean, and there are people that are going to college. There are people that certainly have very meaningful jobs. They have relationships and even get married. They live on their own. I mean, all these things are not rare anymore. There's mm -hmm. lots of opportunities. And, and But I really think it's important to think about those, research them, and incorporate them into the expectations for your loved one and for the family from an early stage. Because if we, if we become very protective and we think about the limitations and then suddenly high school yeah. finishes, feels like they're falling off the cliff, and now we're going to turn that switch to say, now I'm going to remove these limitations and go for these opportunities. Really hard to change on a dime like that. And many families just find that they're stuck for a long time. So incorporating that perspective in at an early age mm -hmm. not only means we expect that she or he is going to be able to do these things, but we're building the skills to be able to do that 
in that the self-advocate also expects that their dreams are really important and that they can mm -hmm. achieve those dreams, but it can't happen overnight and with a flick of a switch. And so it is a starts early, like you were saying. Yes. And I like what you said, like you have to, like there's building steps, like building stones. You have it, like it doesn't just happen. Like you don't just turn on, flick on a switch and then it happens. Mm. And I think most of us realize that, but it can be a little bit daunting. So, you know, like I think for a lot of parents, maybe yourself included, like planning for the future of our kids, you know, it can often be a little bit scary and, and daunting. My daughter is an only child. She also has autism and I'm an older parent. Like where does somebody start? Well, that's a great question. And I think <laughs> it's a question that many people ask, regardless of how old their, their loved one is, because the process seems mysterious and overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people decide, well, I'm not really going to start or I'll just keep pushing it off. You know, she's only five or 10 or mm -hmm. whatever. And so I don't really have to do anything right now, but it's so overwhelming. I think the best place to start is first to really listen and learn. So talk to other families that have people with Down syndrome of various different ages, mm -hmm. ones that are similar to your age to find out what they're doing, but also definitely talk to other families where they're their child is older and maybe, you know, maybe in their teens or, or certainly as well to find out what have they done and what are their experiences? Mm -hmm. If it seems like it's kind of a negative discussion, I would move on and find those <laughs> other people that have a very optimistic, um, positive approach mm -hmm. because that's the opportunities in the world that we live in today. But really to, to listen and learn, I think is the first thing. Then it's the second thing I would say is, is to plan. So once you kind of gather all these things, um, to really think about, well, what are the opportunities, uh, depending on the age of your loved one, to really engage them? What are you mm -hmm. interested in? Now, a five-year-old may not have that much of a um, uh, an idea of what their future might be, but as they get older, to continue to have that conversation, you can certainly observe what they're interested in, but to start to make sure they're involved in those kind of discussions and begin to plan. Mm -hmm. um, so I think if we plan, although the plan may change, as they say, that at least it sets out a roadmap that we can think about things and start to break them down into smaller pieces. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the third third part I would say is to really break it into these small pieces because otherwise it becomes, it looks really overwhelming. So yes. what are the small things I can do? And we've tried to arrange the, the book in such a way that there's recaps at the end of each chapter mm -hmm. and section and and some resources at the back as well, but that it can be used as a resource guide at different stages of life. So if mm -hmm. your child is approaching 18 or other ages of significance that you can flip to certain sections of the book and say, okay, now, now what do I really need to be gearing up to do? So it doesn't have to be an overwhelming process, but there are certain things that now I really need to do if I'm going to stay on track. And uh, so the small pieces tend to be a, a bit more manageable than the whole process itself. Of course. Yes. Like baby steps, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So you've broken the book into five sections. You know, you kind of touched a little bit on it. Perhaps we can talk a little bit about these and, and give a little bit of an overview of the book for the listeners. And like the first one is the mindset shifts. What is this? Um. So yes, we've, we talked about that a little bit and I think it, it, it's the first section of the book because I think it's the most important one mm -hmm. is that we just have to recognize all the opportunities that there are in the world today. 
regardless of how old our loved one is, whenever we're picking up the book, to realize that there are opportunities. And so, yes, we need to be aware of the limitations or the obstacles, but really to be shooting for the stars, there's no reason why they can't be able to do certain things. Mm-hmm. And that that's regardless of whether they're verbal or not verbal. It's just trying to understand and utilize the skills and talents they have and build on those. But it takes a my, positive, optimistic mindset to be able to chip face those things. Mm-hmm. If we're stuck in the, well, this is not what I really planned on and it's different than I expected or different from his or her siblings and friends and relatives, then it really starts to drag the process. And the self-advocate as they're growing up will recognize that as well. So for them to also have a very energetic, positive approach as to what they can do um, makes a world of difference in their in their journey from an early age. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. And then the next one, and I mean, we've already sort of talked about it, but the next is fostering independence. And I think this is something all of us parents, you know, want for our kids, but it's likely going to look different from one family to the next. Did you want to touch a little bit on that? Sure. I think that two things that jump out to me in this section that I think are really important. One are are building blocks. So Mm -hmm. from the earliest of ages, we're trying to build those building blocks that, that foster confidence. Confidence both for the self-advocate that they can do certain things and also confidence in the parents or caregivers that my child can do things and a lot more than maybe I expected. And so I'm going to give them more rope to kind of try things out and experience Mm -hmm. things. And that even though we're always protective of all of our kids, and certainly there's rationale that we may be more protective for the more vulnerable kids. That, that we really need to help them build skills. So those are skills like choice, mm-hmm. uh, problem solving, and initiative. So choice in simple things. What are you going to wear today? Yeah. What are you going to eat? That sort of stuff. And to let them make those choices and talk about, about it during that process about how did you make that choice? Why did you make that choice? Are there any regrets on what, what choice you made? And But to support their making the choice as opposed to we're going to make the choice. And yeah, it's probably a lot quicker for us to make that choice, but uh, it's all about fostering those skills. So choice, problem solving, which is really critical because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, all kids, but certainly our kids with Down syndrome may be challenged with a predicament and they don't know how to figure it out. So really helping them to figure that out, talking through it, giving them the space to figure that out as well, Mm -hmm. and also encouraging them um, when they do feel like they're stuck to go ask for help. It's one of the conversations we have with our daughter because she's big on independence. So she wants to try and figure it out herself. And that's great. But we also tell her, listen, it's okay to ask for help. We all ask for help. Mm -hmm. And so rather than you just say, well, to yourself, well, I really can't do that. So I'm just going to disregard it or, or whatever. It doesn't really help her out as she becomes more independent. So building that comfort to be able to ask other people for help, and and to have the initiative to do certain things on their own as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the building blocks are really important and we can start to do those from a very early age mm-hmm. and continue to support them and feed them, you know, more opportunities to make bigger decisions as they get older. And the other, the second thing in this section was on relationships. Mm-hmm. So how do you build relationships and how do you make sure that they're safe relationships? Yeah. Because as parents, we may say we want independence for our child, but yeah. if we're not comfortable that they're safe, 
and secure, then we're going to be very reticent to let them go out of our side and be able to do these things like mm-hmm. working or living on their own or going to a school somewhere different. And so we really need to help them to learn about different kinds of relationships and how to make sure you're safe, run through different scenarios with mm-hmm. uh, strangers so that they understand what's right, what's wrong, what are appropriate behaviors, not just for strangers, but even for friends and family, mm-hmm. how to you make sure that you're in a position to, to make those choices or they, your loved one is in a position to make the right choices for themselves mm-hmm. is really helpful to build those skills. Relationships are so important for all of us and certainly mm-hmm. for our people with Down syndrome as well, but they need to make sure that they understand what's appropriate and what's not and how to manage strangers because not only does that build the skill mm-hmm. set for them, but again, it kind of builds confidence as a parent or caregiver to say, yeah, they kind of get it. They know what to do. They know who's <laughs> how to behave and they know what to do when somebody approaches them that's not got necessarily their best interest at heart. And so mm-hmm. we feel more comfortable in giving them a little bit more uh, independence along the way. Yes. And I know you outlined some great examples in the in that chapter. And and I like how you said about, you know, giving choices. Sometimes it's just quicker if we do it ourselves. And I know I'm very guilty of that. But I am, you know, that's something that I know that I need to work on is, you know, I have to be a little bit more patient or give myself more time, you know, to let her make her own choices instead of me just doing it for her because I keep thinking that's not helping anybody. Yeah, I get out the door faster, but it's not really helping her just because I'm doing it for her. You know, it's not giving her that choice to do that. And yeah, and I liked what you said about relationships because it is so important for our kids and like who who they can have in their life and who we can trust. And and I remember years ago I met a a, a mom. I think Ainsley was just a baby actually, and her daughter. She said she would let her walk to the mall, and she goes, "It made me nervous," but she would text me so she could use her phone. And I thought, "Wow, that is really that's really awesome." You know, and you know she's walking around the mall on her own and doing her own thing and getting to and from them all on her own like that's awesome and I think we all want to be able to reach that you know it's for some of our kids it might not happen but you know like you said don't put limits on our kids let's see where they can go what they can show us what they can do that's right yeah we did a survey in the last couple of years on our website just you know where where is your family now what are your dreams Mm -hmm. and expectations what are the obstacles and it was quite interesting because the vast majority of respondents said the biggest obstacle towards achieving the dreams and independence is protective parents. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't necessarily the skills of the individual or even the financial benefits and that sort of thing. It was protective parents. And the people who filled out the survey were those same protective parents. <laughs> so they recognized that I, I can be overly protective. Mm-hmm. And, and we certainly are guilty of that as well. And that's mm-hmm. understandable. I don't of course. we should give ourselves a hard time about that. But I think if we give them a little bit more opportunities, generally our individuals with, with Down syndrome want more. They see it around them, right? From their mm-hmm. siblings or friends or family or on TV, and they want more. And we just need to, in a safe environment, but, but give them the opportunity to stretch a little bit more every time and they'll surprise themselves and, and us along the way. Yes, I think that's you know, something to keep in mind is like, I know my daughter has surprised me many times and I'm sure every parent can say that, but you just have to let the reins, loosen the reins a little bit and, and see what they can, can show us. So, yeah. And, you know, the next one, 
and obviously you're in the States, I'm in Canada. It's the foundations for the future. I thought it was very thorough. And I'm a little bit familiar with some of the things that are offered in the States uh, because I just read about it all the time in all the different groups I'm on. But I, I thought this was an excellent chapter that everyone needs to read, you know, at least even if they're not in the States, because then it just gets you thinking about what's available to you. But maybe you can sort of touch a little bit about what that chapter is about. And I, I just think it's just so important. Thanks. So, yeah, there's a few foundations embedded in the chapter, which I just felt were really critical. So health, financial, and legal. Mm-hmm. And I leaned very heavily on experts to support this chapter because I wanted to make sure that all the information in the entire book, and certainly in these three um, uh, items, are accurate and timely and provide the resources so families can kind of remove the mystery and navigate some of these things. The financial aspect, it varies in every state, but generally mm-hmm. my my observation is it's pretty hard to get all the benefits that one deserves, and it's really easy to lose them. Mm-hmm. So it's hard in part because nobody says, well, here's a piece of paper of yeah. all the things that you should be eligible for. Mm-hmm. And so you have to figure that out yourself. And mm-hmm. in our conversations with lots of different families, um, it never failed that they were missing at least one of the financial benefits that are noted in the book that are mm-hmm. available to most every family. And so I really felt it was important to walk through that. It can be a pretty complicated thing in the states. Mm-hmm. You've got federal and state managed programs. And so some are pretty similar, federal ones across the country, and you know, others are very, can be very different. But to be aware of those, and to, we provide resources and links so you can find the information and the application and you understand what the requirements are, because otherwise it's just a mystery that many people kind of throw their hands up and say, it's just too much. Mm-hmm. Independence is a beautiful thing, but it's expensive, yeah. right? And so we need to really think about what are the benefits that are available and how do I find them? When do I get them? And how do I preserve them? Because mm-hmm. you have to make sure you do certain things so you don't lose benefits unknowingly yeah. that can cost you even hundreds of thousands of dollars during their mm-hmm. lifetime. So wanted to make sure that the benefits were detailed. Uh, there's mm-hmm. also a, a good section on the legal issues from special needs trusts and wills, mm-hmm. important things that you yeah. should, very simple really, but things that you need to do to make sure you don't jeopardize their benefits. And also guardianship, which can very family to family has different perspectives on guardianship, but the worst thing you can do is just not do anything at all and not mm-hmm. think about it. So mm-hmm. you should at least understand, go through the pros and cons of having guardianship versus not and some of the other alternatives and make a conscious decision that is right for your family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the, the other item in this section that I thought was just really important and surprised me as a, as a parent of a 20-something-year-old at the time was all the different health risks for adults with Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. So most of us are probably be- very familiar with the health risks at, for babies because we've all kind of been there in this stage. Yeah. And, you know, some families have more of those issues than others, but we're all have became familiar with them years ago. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of different health risks that are quite prevalent, at least twice as likely in the Down syndrome population than the general population, in some cases, as much as seven times as likely. Mm -hmm. Uh, So some families are very familiar with things like obesity and sleep apnea and hypothyroidism. Mm -hmm. Uh, Others may not be, especially if their kids are younger. And I think it, I felt the chapter was important because we, the parents and caregivers 
have to be the greatest advocate for our son or daughter. And it's important we develop relationships with doctors that are trusting in both directions. And in most cases, we need to be sure we fill that role to help educate our doctor. Mm -hmm. So they may have seen other people with Down syndrome or other, uh, they may even be in a Down syndrome clinic, which is fantastic. But still, we know our child best. And Mm -hmm. oftentimes, the doctor will look at certain conditions and say, well, that's probably just because they have Down syndrome. Yes, I've heard well, that so many times. Yeah. And and so we we don't actually address the particular issue. And sleep apnea, for example, can be very dangerous. So you can say, oh, it's just narrow, narrow passageways. Yes, but sleep apnea can be very dangerous and can really promote a lot of other issues. And so we need to test them if those symptoms show themselves we need to be testing them for sleep apnea, for hypothyroidism. It's mm-hmm. pretty easy to get medicated on it. But yeah. if you're not, then you lose a lot of your energy and it can also impact your mental health as well. So those sort of things are really critical. You mentioned your daughter has autism. And oh. I was shocked to realize the prevalence of autism mm-hmm. within the Down syndrome community. And so here again, many people are not diagnosed until they're even in their teens, yeah, because some doctors will say, well, that's that's just behavior of a person with Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. And so making sure that we're all aware and we're treating and we're addressing each individual issue is really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that I to highlight was just mental well-being. So depression mm-hmm. is more than twice as likely within people with Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. And I think it goes a lot back to the relationships that we talked about earlier. I mean, we all have stuff going on in our lives, and that includes our our child or adult with Down syndrome. Many, many of us are able to share those issues, whether it's exciting things or anxieties or worries with our spouse, our friend, our siblings and others or our therapist. But for people with Down syndrome and other intellectual disabilities, oftentimes just understanding them enough to even be able to share them mm-hmm. can be really hard. And so it oftentimes just kind of bakes in their head and it can be really troublesome. And who do we mostly share those with? Most of us would share it with family members and friends. Mm-hmm. And so trying to foster those trusting friendships for our loved ones um, so that they can have more than just a superficial relationship, but have the opportunity to, to share and have fun and share their concerns and worries. Uh, my daughter's had a therapist for, oh, almost 10 years, probably. Wow. And to, and I think that's really important. I think it's important mm-hmm. for the general population, but mm-hmm. I think it's really important for people with with Down syndrome to just be able to have somebody they can trust and have those conversations and somebody who is skilled and understands mm-hmm. how to work with people with intellectual disabilities to foster that that kind of conversation and better mental health. Go ahead. No, yeah, no, I was just saying I definitely agree with you. And I I recently had on a lady who who is a therapist and only deals with people with intellectual disabilities and but also counsels their families as well. And I thought that's amazing. Like we need more people like that out there, you know, who can counsel our kids, but also who understand from a parent's perspective, because I think that can be really challenging for the parent to find someone who really gets this journey and and understands it. I think it can be challenging to find a good fit for that. But also, like you said, for our kids, like maybe they can't really communicate it very well, like their anxiety. And and I had was very surprised to learn about like what you had said about 
the levels of depression and anxiety in our kids when they get older, I didn't realize that it was as high as it is. And, you know, mm-hmm. which is kind of a little scary, you know, and it causes me anxiety thinking about it, you know, wondering how my Truly. girl, you know, like, is she going to feel that way when she's older? And, you know, she's a little bit verbal and we're working hard on it and working hard on her communication. But like you said, in just the prevalence of autism, I have heard so many stories of, of families where they didn't get a diagnosis until they were in their teens. Because just like you said, the diagnostic overshadowing, it's so prevalent in our community. And it really bothers me when I hear those stories where the pediatrician or the doctor or whoever said, oh, that's just a Down syndrome thing. No, maybe not. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And and I think, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, I I talked to a lot of families when I was writing the book and I realized that a couple of the few families had dual diagnosis diagnosis, autism, and Down syndrome. And I hadn't really thought about that because Gwendolyn doesn't have autism. Mm -hmm. But the more I talked to them, I realized that not only was it a diagnosis issue and how do you treat both of them, but also, at least in their cases, they really felt like it was an extra challenge to feel included within a community. Um, They they shared stories that sometimes they they didn't feel like they were truly part of the Down syndrome community. Mm -hmm. Because some parents weren't so inviting of the mm-hmm. of people that may have had different behaviors or experiences, and again at the same time the autism community was not necessarily welcoming of people that also had Down syndrome. I'm sure that varies in each community, but you know I think we just need to be able to embrace um, everyone and try and mm-hmm. provide that support. And it just probably means that families like your own need need extra support, not to be shunned away from the communities that they truly belong in. Oh, 1000%. And I've talked to lots of families that are similar to mine. And, you know, and we do feel like we're kind of like our own community because we don't really feel like we fit into the Down syndrome community and most certainly not in the autism community. That's a whole different ballgame. But, and I think maybe part of the problem with being included in the Down syndrome community is people just aren't sure how to do that because, you know, there's lots of kids who are my daughter's age who are 10 with Down syndrome and you can have a full on conversation with them. Whereas my daughter, you can't, we use touch chat on her iPad. We use sign language. We use some verbal speech as well. So there's so many different things. And she, you know, kind of likes to be by herself, like to play by herself, but at school, there's a couple young girls who have been in the in some grades with her who really, uh, I think, are some genuine relationships there. I mean, she's grade five, you know, and, and I did see a, quite a change by grade four, like which I had heard. That's generally the age where you see the relationships change. But and there's one girl in particular who I just love. You know, she is just so kind and has such a great heart. And, you know, and I think really enjoys her time with my daughter. So, you know, I'm hopeful as they go, you know, as they continue on in school and as they get older, that that friendship can still, you know, be there for her. And I mean, and I get it in the teen years, it's challenging, you know, for everyone. So we'll just probably have to cross that bridge when we get there. But yeah, it's, it, it is really hard. And, and I'm hearing that from a lot of the dual diagnosis parents and families. 
but there's a big group, a big group of us. So, you know, we just have to, you know, find ways that we can support each other as well, like within our little sub community, I guess, if you want to call it. No, no, I, I agree. Definitely having support. You know, the, we talk about the independence team and just, you know, regardless of how big or small that is to have enough support for, mm-hmm. for your loved one, but certainly for you and, and, and caregivers and parents as well because it's not an easy road it's not easy to be no. a parent in general and mm-hmm. and so we need that support and the ideas and a, people that'll help pick us up and also push us forward so mm-hmm. um yeah kudos i like that you know throughout the book you said about the in- independence team because it you know it does take a village but i i think you're right is like pick the people that you feel will be there you know help to support your child kind of I think throughout their life, I mean, that's going to change, I think, a little bit over time as mm-hmm. your child gets older and you have different experts come in and, and so on. Because I, I remember chatting with one lady and and they had like a board, she called it. And every year she would send out like a letter to update, you know, about what their kids were doing and, you know, just any changes and things like that. And I thought that was such a, a great idea. Same as like the independence team is to build your team. And so that people who are on it, they know what's going on with your kid, you know, because, you know, when I had my daughter, I, I'm a single mom by choice, but I do have a partner now. But at the time, prior to Dennis coming into our lives, I was so concerned about what would happen to my daughter if something happened to me. And like you mentioned about having a will and and getting financials in place, because that was just so important to me. Didn't really understand a lot of the stuff, you know, but I got that in place so that I could rest assured that if something were to happen to her, she wouldn't just end up in the system. I, I mean, I had confidence that my family wouldn't allow that to happen, but I also had to make sure she was protected legally. And I think we all have to do that for our kids. And it's so important to have like a will. And I've talked to other families where the child was older, it was a sibling. And it didn't say where the child went to after that par- the parent passed away. And it just causes just so many headaches and challenges. Yeah, right. You know, it's, it's not a yeah. great thing. On, on top of everything else in those sort of situations where people are mourning the passing of somebody or somebody who's just become disabled and is not able to take care of, of a child, that on top of all that and the grieving and so forth, that you have this placement issue. And we can assume, yes, um, you know, Gwendolyn's siblings would take care of her and that sort. But if I don't have a legal document that mm-hmm. says that, then it, we can be tied up in court for a long time during mm-hmm. this very difficult period, especially for, for everybody, but especially for our daughter with, with Down syndrome. And so we just wanted to make sure that we at least took that issue out of the equation. Yeah. And it just makes it easier for everybody. It's just one less thing to right. to really worry about. Yeah. It's just mm-hmm. so important. I, yeah. And I thought it was such a a great chapter because like you said, you, you consulted experts and I thought it was really thorough. And like you said, generally everyone's always missing something. And I know in Canada it's, mm-hmm. it's quite different, but uh, you know, we can, st- we still have different things available to us, like a, a registered disability plan that, you know, I put into every year for my daughter, you know, just so that there is something for her when she's, she's older. And like I said, I already had a a will and I made arrangements with, Mm -hmm. you know, my brother at the time that he would take her, but 
there were so many considerations that the lawyer even said that I hadn't even thought about. Like, what happens if your brother dies? Is his wife willing to take mm -hmm. her over? I go, oh, I hadn't thought of that. So there are just so many things that people don't necessarily think about. So that's why it's good to con consult somebody who, who knows this stuff. And so, and I thought it was really put well put together in that chapter. And then Thanks. you're welcome. And, you know, and then the next section was taking on the world. So do you want to elaborate a bit on that? Sure. So, you know, I think we all agree that there's lots of opportunities these days, but we have to, we have to foster those. We have to go out there and seek them with our self-advocate. As I mentioned, you know, many can work and have meaningful jobs and, and it ranges in number of hours a week. But um, I know here in the States, there's a lot of agencies that, that are supposed to help mm -hmm. people with intellectual disabilities to find jobs. Same here. We've utilized some of those. Uh, and in all cases, in our experience, we eventually found that that was not really going to work because they just weren't dedicated to trying to find mm -hmm. the right places. Yeah. Uh, maybe others will have better, better opportunities and situations than we had. But eventually we realized we had to roll up our sleeves, create a resume and start mm -hmm. marching around to local businesses with Gwendolyn to find not a job, but the right job. Mm -hmm. Right. So we, we all see our sons and daughters out in the community and we see certain people that just seem to have that chemistry with them. They're mm -hmm. very caring. They, they can communicate. It seems like from like the first sentence when they, their eyes meet and they seem to have this rapport. And then there's others that really just don't understand how to communicate. Mm -hmm. They don't have the patience for it. Yeah. That can be understandable at times, but if that's always their demeanor and approach, that's probably not the person you want your son or daughter to be working for or with or go into a day program with that mm -hmm. sort of approach. And so we have to go out and find the right people. And when we find that right arrangement, then it can be just golden. But we also have to recognize that, especially with work, that we're not offering a charity. I think a lot of people feel like yeah. a lot of people in the Down syndrome community feel this way. And certainly a lot of employers will say, well, this is, you know, it's a nice thing to do. So I'm going to go help somebody out. Well, that's great, but we're not asking for a donation and for charity. Our sons or daughters have skills. So mm -hmm. there are things they can do. They're strong team players. They, they have a lot of energy. So, and let's figure out what are the things that our son or daughter enjoys doing and can do and try and find the place where they can do that. Just like anybody else would try and find a place that they can work at that utilizes their skills and that they're energetic about. And so it, it's not always easy, but I think mm -hmm. we need to try and find that match. So we talk a little bit about that in the book, mm -hmm. as well as transportation options yeah. and, and things like that. Day programs. So you mentioned earlier that at 18 to 22, depending on where you are, it sort of feels like you're falling off of a cliff. We had that exact same experience. And many families find that, well, you know, my son or daughter is going to come home now that she's finished yeah. uh, she or she's finished public school. And they're going to sit on the couch and they'll run errands with me and we'll do stuff. But um, I really think that the runway for learning for our, our kids with Down syndrome is just so much longer. They'll, they may learn slower and mm -hmm. differently, but they continue to learn. And we have to provide that opportunity for them to do that. And if they stay home when they really don't have the challenges or opportunities to continue to learn different skills, whether it's academic or vocational or social then they'll start to regress. 
and they'll mm-hmm. lose things. And we've seen people that have lost the, they were able to read. Now they can't read. They were able to be pretty sociable and now they can't do that. Mm-hmm. So we have to really find those opportunities in the community. It could be, there's lots of day programs in many, many cities around mm-hmm. the um, country. Some are really good and some are not. So you have yeah. to really spend a lot of time to understand what you're looking for and what, what the options are and who do you know that that utilizes different day programs, but the opportunities to continue to keep our sons and daughters on this positive tra- trajectory are definitely out there, but staying home on the couch is probably not the best option for, for any of us. Oh, I, yeah, totally. <laughs> I definitely agree on that. And yeah, because we want to see our kids keep learning. And like you said, they can keep, continue to keep learning. It might be at a slower pace, but that's okay. Just keep them, mm-hmm. you know, I think a lot of it is we have to keep our kids engaged. And like you said, sitting on the couch isn't going to do it for anybody. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I, I talked and, and Gwendolyn, when she finished high school, we were fortunate to find a day program run by somebody who was just a huge advocate for Down syndrome, for the oh, Down syndrome community, our city. And she built a program for post high school adults with Down syndrome. And they had up to 70 people that came from all over the city. This was in Houston and, and they had a fabulous program. It was, you know, great social experience, but also academic, vocational and so forth. And we were really fortunate to have that. And now she's in a residential living community Mm -hmm. of her own, where she also has that same kind of vibrant day program as well. But it's, it's not easy to find those, but it's so critical to do that. I have, Mm -hmm. you know, met some parents that that their, their uh, child or adult is home with them but they re- they view it as homeschooling. So it is, they take on, they, the parents take on the responsibility of, I'm going to make it a vibrant experience, right? So we're, mm-hmm. I'm not just dragging them to the grocery, but we're going to learn when we go to the grocery about nutrition, about finances and money. We're also going to go to museums. We're going to have play dates and we're going to do things that give them the opportunity to, to really meet other people. So if they stay home, it's a, it's a, huge responsibility of the parent. Mm-hmm. Some parents love that and welcome it. Mm-hmm. And others, I'm, I myself would say, yeah. I'm not fit to do that. <laughs> Same so, here. <laughs> uh, just to recognize that and, and consider that when you're making choices for activities after high school. Mm-hmm. I know I'm not cut out for that. And then when, during the COVID thing where we had to do the online and homeschooling, I, I hated it. I'm sure most parents did, but I go, I'm not cut out for this. I know that. (laughs) And then the last section of your guide is called home is where the heart is. So what's that all about? So this is, I think it's a really important section that is probably the most controversial section. So some parents could never foresee that their young adult with Down syndrome would not live with them. You know, they feel like it's part of the obligation. When they were born, they're going to live with me. It's my responsibility and so forth. And there's even a level of shame and embarrassment in even thinking about them not living at home. But two things changed that for us. One is we really, as I mentioned earlier, started to engage with Gwendolyn about what do you want? So mm-hmm. if we flip the script and stop getting at, and get out of our own parental heads about what do I think I'm supposed to do? But what, what does my son or daughter really want? Then she wanted independence. She wanted to move about. She wants to have a job. She wants to do all these things by herself. Uh, you Good know, for so, her. And there's, 
So I shouldn't be the one holding her back on those sort of mm-hmm. things. And then the other thing that we realized is that we weren't going to be around forever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so we can all probably acknowledge that, but I, I didn't recognize how that's changed so much, even in our own lifetimes. So people with Down syndrome back in the 50s were living till, you know, on average, like 10. Yeah, I know. And in the 80s, they were living to, on average, in the mid-20s. Mm-hmm. So that was not that long ago. And my daughter's 28. So it really mm-hmm. makes me think about what the situation <laughs> was like. She was born in the, in the mid-90s. So, yeah. uh, but nowadays, people with Down syndrome are living well past 60. Mm-hmm. And so the opportunities are different. And the challenges are different. And this is really kind of the first generation that is outliving their parents Mm -hmm. or caregivers. So back to some of the legal stuff we talked about, Mm -hmm. really important that we recognize that and make choices and decisions about them and their finances, because you've got to finance their life for a much longer period than you did just a few decades ago. Mm -hmm. And who are they going to stay with? Where are they going to live? What, what, what does that look like? And, and again, we didn't write the book to say, this is what we've done, so you should do this. But I think mm-hmm. it's a very important that you have this kind of conversation about what are my options? So mm-hmm. yes, they could live with me, the parent, but eventually they're not going to be able to. I'm not going to be able to take care of them. I might not, not even be around. And I'm probably not going to give them the most uh, energetic environment that they deserve to be able to grow and learn. Mm-hmm. So really putting our self-advocates first, I don't know that that's the best situation. Our, their yeah. siblings may be another option, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, and, and certainly I know Gwendolyn's siblings would accept that responsibility, but that's not necessarily what they were planning on. And I'm not sure that's necessarily the best situation for Gwendolyn either to be going mm-hmm. wherever around the country, you know, and that sort of thing. But other families may decide that's the right thing to do, in which case I would encourage you to have conversations with your siblings, make sure they understand what the responsibilities are so that they are prepared whenever that situation may happen, because it probably won't happen in a planned methodical way. It's yeah. going to happen because of urgency or some catastrophe, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And so it's really keeping that invo- involved and certainly more people in this generation are moving out of the family home and into some kind of community living. Mm-hmm. And there's a wide range. And we talk about that in the book, a lot of different options. And, and some families will find different options to be more palatable. Some are, have more vibrant day programs and others mm-hmm. don't. Some have, some are just residential and you have to find their own day programs. That may be fine. Some are, some cities around the country have many options and others, especially in rural places, may have very, very few options. Yeah. But understanding what those are, some are public pay and some are private pay. And so what can you afford and what's the opportunities and what really provides the greatest opportunity for our loved ones to, to grow the way they can and will. And we just felt like those decisions were critical decisions for our family and certainly for Gwendolyn. And we, we as parents and caregivers and guardians, wanted to make sure that we made those decisions with her when we could. Mm-hmm. So rather than wait until we're much older and maybe something comes up in the meantime yeah. that she wanted independence, we had groomed her and she had prepared herself for that big step. She wanted to, to do that. So we started to look at a lot of different places 
with Gwendolyn and talked a lot about this until we found the right place. So we felt like it was a, a good opportunity for us to be involved in that conversation mm -hmm. and to make a planned step rather than a dramatic change at the wrong time. So um, I, I think that it's the last chapter, but it's really critical yeah. to have the conversation and make whatever decision each family feels is right for them. And, and maybe that decision is reviewed every once in a while as situations mm -hmm. change. Of course. Yeah. And I hadn't thought about it. You said that this is the first generation that's likely going to outlive their parents. And you're right. And because mm -hmm. I always look at the the families whose kids are older that are ahead of me to see where they're going on this journey so that I, you know, can take and learn from them. And, and I remember when my daughter was a baby, a, a person said to me, you need to plan not just for while you're alive, you need to plan for her whole life, like after you're gone. And I hadn't, yeah. at, she was just a baby at the time. And I go, oh yeah, she's right. I hadn't thought of that. But like you said, it, and, and it can be expensive. So that's why it's just mm -hmm. so important to plan. We want our kids to live their best lives. And, you know, just because we're not here, that we may not be here, that that, that can't still happen. I think with proper planning, you know, yeah. meeting with the right people and, and things like that, that our kids can still thrive and still have amazing lives, even though we may not be here. And, mm -hmm. you know, I love like throughout the book that you, you kept reiterating about the self-advocate, like that's our kids and that, you know, they're the ones steering the boat, like they're the captain of their independence team. I just, you know, I, I don't think I'd ever really seen things written quite like that before. And I thought, yeah, that is so true. Like we might have one idea, but our kids might have another idea of what they want or, you know, where they want to go and what what they want to be and what they want to do. You know, it's not up for us to make those decisions. I mean, yes, to some degree, but they need to be a part of, of yeah. making those decisions. Yeah. Ultim ultimately, we may be the ones to make that choice, yeah. but if we make it in a vacuum, we're probably missing out. And again, our, our kids probably will surprise us and what their dreams and wishes are. And mm -hmm. we just need to make sure we understand those and, we may challenge them because we have different perspectives, but we also need to think about how we can help them to achieve those dreams. Mm -hmm. we, we have, my daughter and I have a great conversation and we talk about, you know, so who's the most important person in your independence team? And she quickly will say, well, I am. She yeah. is not me. <laughs> yeah. And uh, she'll say, I am. She recognizes that. And it's easier said than done, right? But mm -hmm. we have to make sure that with, even when our kids are younger and we go to an ARD meeting at school, that the teacher is involving them in the ARD meeting, right? Mm -hmm. They may not understand all of it, but let's slow things down and have a conversation so that our self-advocate will understand, well, what are we talking about? It's, you know, mm -hmm. we don't need to whisper the words Down syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> they know they have Down syndrome. Let's have the conversation about what can we do to help you build your skills? Mm -hmm. And the same thing with doctors. I mean, if we go to doctors and they start talking directly to my wife and I, it's like, no, first you need to ask Gwendolyn how mm -hmm. she feels and what's going on and what hurts and what, what's changed and everything. And you'd be surprised, but she'll tell you for the most part, what's going on yeah. if she likes you, you know, if there's that rapport, <laughs> if not, she might not say anything to you, but, and, uh, and we're there for support, but she's your, she is your, your client. She's your patient. And so I think it's just really important and it builds that self-esteem for our loved ones as well, that they recognize, they pick those things up 
and they recognize, yeah, I am an important part of this process. And I mean, we want them to self-advocate for themselves, whether mm -hmm. it's with government entities that some will go petition for uh, laws and rules or just for themselves with a friend or, or at work, they need to be able to self-advocate. And so we need to encourage them to do that. Yes, most definitely. Now, like we've kind of given a good overview of your book and, you know, what do you think, like, as you kind of go over everything, I thought, what do you think are the three most important steps in fostering independence in our kids are? I think that there's, there's just, we've covered a lot, but I, yeah. I think that the person-centered planning approach mm -hmm. that we've been talking about uh, over the last few minutes is just really important. Because oftentimes, if we look at it through our own eyes, through that lens, we might say, well, I, I don't really think I'm comfortable with them living on their own or, or going to work by themselves or even possibly taking the bus by themselves. Mm -hmm. But if we think about, well, what, if, what do our, our kids and young adults want and how can I help them to do that? Right. So there might be, there certainly a, were a lot of skills that we jotted down on this big butcher block piece of paper with mm -hmm. Gwendolyn years ago that she didn't yet have. But we said, right. well, okay, let's understand. We, we need to learn these things. So we're going to practice. We're going to do checklists. We're going to, we're going to practice some step by step. And she can learn all, all those things. Mm -hmm. And so putting them first is the most important thing. Otherwise, we're going to be heading in a direction that they don't necessarily want to go to. And mm -hmm. we, might feel as a parent, well, I'm doing my job because I'm doing what I think is right, but they're right there. And whether they're verbal or not, they can still communicate what their interests are and what they would really like. So I, I think that's the most important thing. Then it's a skills development. So, mm -hmm. okay, I want to do that. I want to work. I want to be able to, to take care of myself. Okay, well, let's, let's work on personal hygiene. Let's work on talking with other people and communicating. Let's understand what kind of work you would like to do and, and talk through that. And how do we build those skills? We talked earlier about things like choice, problem solving, mm -hmm. and initiative. And, and I think those are really hard for a lot of people, not mm -hmm. just people with Down syndrome, um, but to really help foster that really builds that confidence in them and, and our confidence in them as well. So I think skills development is critical and that can start really early on. Mm -hmm. And uh, And finally, it's just options. So as I mentioned earlier, and probably thought at, at, at the beginning of this project, that there was a certain way that we, we chose to raise Gwendolyn and we chose to support her independence. But then we realized that's, that's not necessary. It works for us. I mean, I learn stuff all the time about, mm -hmm. about it. And we, and we change our course when we find that maybe, maybe we haven't quite hit the nail on the head on things, mm -hmm. but, but every family is different. And so yeah. I would, encourage each family to just go down this path rather than, than turn away from it, but go down the path and understand the options and make choices with your self-advocate that will kind of move everybody forward together. That's fantastic. You know, and at the end of each chapter, I, I really enjoyed like the short stories that you had from the different parents. I thought that was a really nice touch. And I actually, the one that talked about uh, the dual diagnosis, I actually ended up contacting Rosara. I found her because she's kind of got a unique name. I go, I think I've seen that name around a few times. Yeah. And I contacted her after reading the story about her son, Ethan, because she mentioned, as we previously ju just talked about, about feeling 
alone and isolated. So I just wanted to let her know that I see you. I, you know, I hear you. And yeah, I thought that was great. And it was just nice to see other parents' perspectives, you know, in this, in the little snapshots at the end of each chapter. Like, what is your hope for the book? I, I think it's something that parents should probably be getting when their kids is in kindergarten, but like, what's your hope for the book, the guide? I wanted families to realize that it doesn't have to be an overwhelming mystery, but if you have somebody that'll kind of hold your hand and walk you through the steps, then it becomes doable. I believe there's two ways to utilize the book. One is if you do a read through, then you're aware of the things mm -hmm. that are, regardless of whatever age your, your child is, that you're aware of the options and decisions that need to be made along the way. Some mm -hmm. of it may be way down the road, but you're aware of these sort of things. And I think, again, kind of goes back to the mindset and the possibilities that are out there. So it's really intended to be an uplifting story, but there's a lot of things that need to be done along the way. And then the other use is really as a resource. Mm -hmm. So as we mentioned a little bit earlier on the kind of one step at a time, baby steps, is that to hold on to it, put it in your bookshelf. And as you feel like you're getting to different intervals to really look it up. So we, we tried to make sure that each section has a clear table mm -hmm. that says these are certain things you need to do at different ages or stages of their life. Mm -hmm. And also we have that in the back in an index section so that you can pick up the book and, and say, okay, I want to know everything I need to do before they turn 18. Okay, mm -hmm. well, I can find that in the book and I can go to just those sections and do that because I, answering your question on what was the goal and what we want for the book, that it, it just helps families to navigate mm -hmm. the process and make it very usable. Yes. As opposed to overwhelming and not knowing mm -hmm. where to start. Yes, I found that exactly, that it was very usable. I found, you know, even though you're in the States and I'm in Canada, I could still apply almost everything that was written in the book. So I think anyone would benefit from, you know, at least getting a copy and, and following along. So speaking of getting a copy, so where can people find your book and how can people find you? So the best way to find me, my book and other things that we're doing is just to go to our website, which is beyond down syndrome.net. Okay. Beyond down syndrome.net. And when you, when you get on the website, you can find, there's a tab for my book. If you're interested in picking up a copy of the book, you can also find, we have lots of other stuff. So every week I'm putting out a blog on a different mm -hmm. topic. Uh, and sometimes I've got the families that you mentioned that are in the book, their stories are, are on our blog every once in a while, just to share some of that information and perspective. We just came out with an independence checkup so that families can kind of answer a handful of questions, really, a couple mm -hmm. of handfuls, and <laughs> kind of gauge where am I right now? What, mm -hmm. what, are, what are the things I really might need to focus on? Do I feel like okay. I'm a little bit behind or maybe ahead? And where can I get those resources, either in the book or, or online? And we also have an independence worksheet on mm -hmm. the website. So you can print that out. You can customize it. You can save it on your own. Uh, computer and customize it, but it it helps to kind of provide those steps that you need to go through so that, again, it's not overwhelming, but it's just a step-by-step -step plan. And that's what I would encourage people to do is when you, if you're ready to get started and it's never, never too late, it's also never too early to get started. Yeah. That the first thing is just to start to put your plan together and uh, it'll start to fall into place. And I think it's, it's the best thing we can do for our families and certainly mm -hmm. for our self-advocates. Yeah. So I like how you said in the book that it is, 
it doesn't matter where you are in this journey you can start like it's never too late so and i think that can give a lot of parents they can feel a little bit okay i can do this you know <laughs> because it can be very overwhelming especially if our kids are older and we feel like maybe we missed a few things along the way but i think it's reassuring to know that it doesn't matter where you are you just have to start that's right that's right there's still plenty of opportunities right and so thank you so much, Steve, for coming on today. I really appreciate your time and giving us a nice overview of your book. And we'll certainly put a link in the show notes so that people can find you. So it's beyonddownsyndrome.net, correct? That's it. Awesome. Yes. Okay. Lovely. Thank you so much, Steve. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Mary. Wonderful. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. I really enjoyed talking with Steve. He gave me a lot of things to think about and to work on starting to create a plan for Ainsley. She's only 10, but you know, you can start earlier, you can start later, but I think really the uh, the idea is to start. And you know, I have often wondered what independence will look like for Ainsley, you know, especially having the dual diagnosis. I want her to live her best life whatever that entails if that is living here at home with us or if it's living somewhere else you know i want her to have the best life so i thought there was so many great ideas in there you know and as we talked about it's never too late to start you know and here are some of my takeaways you know i really loved how he said that one day his daughter gwendolyn just came home and she just said i I want to be independent and you know, I want to do my own thing. And I sometimes think we maybe forget to ask our kids about that or wonder if they're even thinking about that, but you know, I think they are. And my second takeaway is, you know, we need to ask our kids, like what does independence mean to them? Because it's going to look different for everyone. You know, maybe it's, living in a suite downstairs, or maybe it's living with a couple of friends or in some kind of community living, you know, I think the world's their oyster really, you know, and I think it's, you know, important to try to foster, you know, friendships, you know, especially while they're in school and, you know, because hopefully those will carry on once they finish school. And number three, you know, Steve talked about how they made her an independence plan that was from her own initiative. You know, he talked about the big uh, butcher block of paper and they just wrote everything down that she wanted and she wanted to achieve. And, you know, as he said, she couldn't necessarily do everything at that moment of time, but it gave them sort of a plan to work towards. So, you know, get out your, your butcher block paper or your journal or what have you. And, start working with your kiddo and seeing what they want because I really do think it, it might surprise us when we actually ask them and number four you know we talked about that there's so many opportunities out there and sometimes you might have to do a little bit of research but I think right now like right now there are so many different opportunities for our kids. We're seeing them in mainstream media more. We're seeing them in 
in ads on TV and in movies, you know, we hear about our kids getting married, going to college, all those things. I think, you know, right now is the best time, you know, in our, our, in our lives to have Down syndrome, you know, because I think society is more open and, and hopefully more encouraging of our kids. But I just feel there's right now just so many more opportunities, but sometimes we have to dig a little bit to find what those are. And as Steve talked about in takeaway number five is, you know, the building blocks, you know, start those building blocks, like right from the very beginning, because we need to build on our kids skills. I know I'm guilty about doing too much for Ainsley. And I keep thinking, okay, we need to work on this, or we need to work on that. And yes, it is faster if I just do it, but it's really not helping her. So I am definitely guilty of that. And I am definitely going to work much harder on really trying to foster those skills and, and help her more with just her, her independence and whatever that might look like. And, you know, something that I hadn't really thought of that Steve talked about is that for our kids, this is the first generation of people with Down syndrome that are going to likely outlive their parents or their caregivers. And, you know, that also puts a little bit more onus on us as the parents or caregivers to make sure that we have a plan in place for after we're gone. Because as I mentioned, I I remember when Ainsley was a baby, uh, a caregiver we were just chatting and she said, you need to plan for her entire life, not just my life, but for her entire life. And that's when I realized, oh yes, you're right. I do. And of course it added a little bit more pressure on me, but it made me realize that, you know, this is a long-term plan that we need to, to think of. And, you know, finally, you know, the top three things that Steve talked about was, you know, use a person-centered approach you know, it's about your kid, uh, you know, skills development, give them choices, you know, give them opportunities to problem solve and provide options, you know, find out what choices your child want, wants, what different options are open to them, you know, and then we can build on that together and, and also encourage our child to build on that together. So lots of things to think about. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. And as we talked about it, you can get Steve's book at beyonddownsyndrome.net, all one word. And, you know, he has lots of stuff on his website. Like he says, he blogs frequently about different topics and things like that. You know, so go and have a look. And, you know, thanks again for listening to the T21 Mom podcast. And I would really love it if you would go and check out the new T21Mom.com website. It looks so much better. You can listen to the episodes there. You can, I think you can even leave a review there. Uh, You can subscribe if you like. I'm not exactly sure, you know, what I'm going to do with people's emails. Nothing negative. Don't worry. I think it 
you know, maybe once in a while, send out a little newsletter or something like that. But it would always be Down syndrome focused. And you can even leave a voicemail. You know, if you don't want to leave a review, you can always leave a little voicemail. You know, I would love to hear from you and, and what you thought of, you know, the podcast. We're 100 episodes in. And what do you want to hear for the next 100 episodes? So thanks again. And keep on loving on your rocking kiddos and I'll see you next time.